This is Paradoxical, the podcast about the psychology behind big success in small business. I'm your host, Steve McCready. And today my guest is Fritz Westover of the Virtual Viticulture Academy. Hey, Fritz, how are you doing today, man? Great, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm glad that we were able to, to get a time to connect. I originally reached out, I know, quite quite some time ago, and Fritz is apparently a busy and, and popular guy, but I still found the the time to come on and, and talk viticulture, virtual academies, and podcasting, and he's got all kinds of cool stuff going on, so we got a lot to talk about here today. And Fritz, for those who, who don't know you or haven't heard of you, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us about kind of your origin story? We'll start there. Yeah, Steve, glad to do that. And this is a great time of year for me because uh, we're getting our first freezes coming in. The vineyards are finally going dormant. So I get a little time in the uh, studio here. But my background is as a viticulturist, um, which is an expert on wine grape growing, specifically wine grapes is what I work with. Of course, there's juice grapes and table grapes. I chose wine. It's more interesting for me. And uh, I've been doing that for about 23 years. I started off working with the education system through Virginia Tech, Texas A&M. As a viticulturist, I worked as a public servant, helping the wine industries in those respective states. Uh, I've done stints over in Italy. I've done work out in California. And I just love helping wine grape growers. I found out pretty early on that I had a talent for finding problems, solving problems, communicating uh, with growers. And I've just really enjoyed it, really enjoyed it a lot. You know, My background is in horticulture, I've got a master's in plant pathology. My father was a home winemaker, but I didn't come into the industry as someone whose family had a vineyard and winery, which which is great because I, I love to tell that to other young individuals who are interested in the wine industry. You don't need to grow up in the wine industry to become a part of it. You can just, the passion will get you a long ways. So I've I've been doing the whole viticulture education thing for many, many years I started doing it for myself more as an entrepreneur. Uh, That started back, I would say, in 2013 when I launched my consulting business while I was working for an organization in California doing outreach and education for grape growers. I had a side hustle as a consultant, and I was working in Texas primarily where most of the growers I had helped were located. And you know, I just built that consulting business from the ground up, kind of grassroots. And you know, after a while, I had more clients than I could really physically visit. And, you know, part of my job is visiting them, Steve, and walking through the vineyard. And it's a terrible job. You know, I have to go go to vineyards all day long, walk through the, the vineyard, drink wine at the end, talk about the wine, and then go to another Sounds one. Sounds pretty awful. Rinse and repeat. <laughs> yeah, pretty awful. Never gets old. Just go figure. And so, but after a while, you know, there's a lot of travel involved. I was working in in several states. I still work in Texas primarily, but also... Which, by the way, yes, there's a lot of wine grapes in Texas. I work also in the state of Georgia. Uh, So I fly to Atlanta, get a rental car, visit my growers in Georgia. I do the same in Arizona. I work with growers there. And then I work virtually as a consultant for vineyards across the country and in other countries as well. So the, the long and short story is when I was, my bandwidth was a little too run down and I couldn't physically be in more vineyards. I already had all these systems in place to help grape growers. I had information. I had videos that I'd, I'd worked on, you know, different um, publications I'd worked on that were for my, my clients. And so I wanted to know how could I help more grape growers and how could I make that part of my business plan without having to travel more. So at that point, I launched what I call now Virtual Viticulture Academy. This was, There's a story behind how that all came to, to be. I thought I would just do online courses, and then I got the idea of starting an online community and membership community. So that was probably about six years ago now that we launched Virtual Viticulture Academy. And that's grown since then, very healthy every year. Um, and I've got some, you know, some helpers that help me in the academy, but it's primarily me as the viticulturist. And, and in the last year, I've hired on another viticulturist and th- that business is continuing t- to grow. And and uh, the latest thing, I guess, if, if we're going to talk about fun new stuff that I'm doing in the business would be the podcast. So, you know, we're here doing this podcast. You know, I'm on my podcast, Mike, you're on your podcast, Mike, we're hanging out for about a year now. I've been working on my podcast. It's called the Vineyard Underground podcast. And so that's where I I get down and dig into the deep details about grape growing. So if, if someone out there is interested in learning about grape growing or what it takes to be a grape grower or the science behind grape growing, that's kind of what we cover there and try and make it fun. You need you need the edutainment these days if you want to keep people's attention. It has to be entertaining. It has to be good quality. And then, of course, you want to actually help people. And at the end of the day, 
that's kind of my my deal. I want to help people to be better grape growers, to be better at whatever it is they're doing. So in my case, it's growing grapes. You did your undergraduate degree at Penn State and studied horticulture, correct? Correct. Right. Yeah. And so, so tell me about that. And even going back to that, like why you decided to, you know, to study horticulture and then kind of where things started to move from there post-college for you. Yeah. So like I said, my, my father was a, a home winemaker. So I, I was you know very early on drinking and, and making wine, but it was never very scientific. It was kind of that, that batch wine you make, you know, that, you, you know, when a relative gives you that bottle of wine they made, they're so proud of it and you're kind of hesitant to drink it. That, that was my father, but he, you know, he got lucky and had a couple of good ones. And so I, I loved growing things. And when I was in Penn State, I decided I would do the horticulture thing because I loved working with plants, always was working in the home garden uh, with my family, loved it. Uh, but it wasn't until I was about 20 years old that I, I realized that I could connect the wine with the plant side. I was in Penn State. I'm from Pennsylvania, from the Poconos. And I was in Penn State and there was this magazine on the shelf in the library. And it had a, a picture of a guy in front of a vineyard on it. And I thought, well, that looks intriguing. Let me pick up that magazine. And it was it was Money Magazine of all magazines. So I flipped to the article immediately. And there's this man named Doug Tunnell. And he was a correspondent for a major news organization. I don't remember if it was CBS or NBC. Doesn't matter. So he's talking about how he retired and he went back to his family's property in Oregon and started a vineyard and was growing claret and Pinot Noir and all these varieties of grapes. And then I got to the part in the article, Steve, where he said, and then in the winter, when the vines go dormant, I go on my ski vacations. And so that like, that triggered something for me. So I, I said, okay, this, this might be the career path for me because I love snowboarding and, and, and winter sports too. From that day onward, that's all I focused on. That's all I thought about was how can I get to the point where I'm working in the wine industry and using my plant background in a vineyard. So I just kind of came from there. And so I just, I put the, the, the viticulture goggles on, if you will, the tunnel vision. So I can streamline getting to that point. So that was a, that's very clearly for you. like this world, this industry is definitely the place that I want to focus. It's like that, that got really clear to you because you saw this is something that relates to things I know have interest in, but also there's this lifestyle element that it can support for me that really speaks as well. But you're not making your own wine, at least not extensively, right? And going that route, why not go that route? That's kind of, I think, what most people, of course, think of when they think of that industry is, you know, buying a winery or starting a winery and doing, you know, growing your own grapes and all of that. So why not that angle? Yeah, it's a good, really good question. And I get that a lot. People ask me why I don't have my own wine brand. Do I have my own vineyard? And you know, I've been doing this 20 some years. And the answer is still no. Do I make wine? Do I know how to make wine enough to, to be dangerous at it? Yes, absolutely. But you know, first of all, there's the expression in the wine industry. If you want to make a million dollars in the wine industry, you start with 2 million and then you wait about 10 years and, and you hope you can break even by then, right? So it's tough industry to make money in. So my goal was to start from the bottom up and either be a vineyard manager or do something where I can work with grapevines and learn from the ground up. So I, I interned at vineyards. I did all the, the most basic labor you can do. I learned from the ground up. But then when I realized there was a need for education, uh, when I saw that university systems would put together meetings, the grape growers would come, they'd learn about the latest research, about information, about practices and techniques. I started seeing some speakers at these meetings as a, a young graduate student who would come in and they would just, they would floor me with their expertise. So they would stand up, there are a few good ones uh, who would stand up and they would mesmerize the crowd and they would steal the show. You know, you have the researcher who's talking very dry about the results of their study. And then you had this consultant who maybe they're not doing research, but they're helping a lot of people and they had the charisma about them and they had the way to capture attention. And what I noticed was people were taking notes, they were learning. And so I saw that as this breakthrough because at the time, most people didn't know this, but I was a pitch man. I was, I was doing this to put myself through college. So I was used to jumping up in front of an audience and giving a presentation and having this goal or a sale that I was trying to make. And, it's, and that was kind of like, yeah, they were, they were selling their ideas and, their, and themselves in a way. And I saw that and it really, really resonated with me. And so I knew that by going into the education component, I would have that platform where I could help growers 
and and be able to do that in a way that I saw others doing it that I admired. So I think that's really where that came from. And so is that what led to you pursuing, as you said, you started to get asked to do some consulting. So is that something you like intentionally tried to cultivate or nurture? Is that something that happened? Someone just said, Hey, can I get some input from you? Or how, how did that begin for you? You never start off by being a consultant, right? First, you right. need to become an expert in, in a field. So I spent a good 15 years almost, or 12 to 15 years learning the craft and learning the trade. And so I, my job, my first job was to be an extension advisor, which is with a university extension service. It's public servant. I worked with Virginia Tech for a few years back in 2004 and five, I'm sorry, five and six, and then moved down to Texas, to Texas A&M. Family move took me down there. So I started working there doing education. And so essentially I was consulting, but you know, for an umbrella of, of another organization. My paycheck was steady, but I got to do that role and I got to become more comfortable with the public speaking aspect and the learning what really worked and what didn't. And so I did that on, so to speak, on someone else's dime. And so it wasn't until I had the, the confidence and expertise built up from that, that kind of jumped out on my own and, and had some people asking me for help in different areas of the country. And I was able to help them and, and jump out on a limb and do that. But no, that's not where you start. Uh, now, what was really nice about making the move and the transition it wasn't like I stopped working for someone else one day and just called all these growers up and asked if they'd be my clients. I, you know, I moved to California. I called the 20 growers I helped the most in Texas, for example, and said, hey, if you want to keep working with me, here's how we could do it. 18 of those 20 said yes. And so that kind of seeded the whole consulting business that I started. So I still worked a regular job while I consulted on the side. It wasn't like I jumped off the cliff. I kind of put a foot in the puddle, you know, put test the water. It feels pretty good. Let's put the whole leg in and eventually the whole dive. And what was it that made you decide to go and start pursuing the consulting piece versus just continuing to work for someone else with the I'll say steady paycheck, but I think everyone knows that's not that's that's more of a historical truth than a current one. But but still the thing of all the challenges that go with, as any of us who have run and run business know. Um, so what was it about that that spoke to you that you're like, yeah, I want to go that route and work on going out on my own. Okay. So remember that magazine I found in the uh, library at Penn State? It was a pivotal moment where something just hit me like a ton of bricks. I was doing a meeting, a t we called them tailgate meetings, where we'd get growers together. And I was working for Texas A&M at the time. And there was a gentleman who I never met before who was in the audience. I, I don't even think he was a grape grower. And at the end of my presentation, he came up to me and he said directly to me, I don't remember the guy's name, but he said, I don't know what they're paying you, but it's not enough. And it just hit me out of left field. I've never had someone say something like that to me especially at a university meeting or something like that. And it did really resonated with me, Steve. And, you know, I thought you're right. They're not paying me enough. This is, you know, and I'm not really in a position where I can get ahead. You know, this is kind of going to be what it is and I can keep doing great things here, but there's no real advancement. And so that's what really struck me to, to move, to make the move to California and then to consult on the side to see if I could test that and see if it would work. Now the, the intention to consult as full time was not really in place there at that moment. It was an idea. And you have to remember, I always, the people I admired the most in the industry were those consultants from a very young age. I watched them speak. I watched them, you know, help other growers. I watched them pretty much mesmerize a group of people. And I thought that was so impactful. What a better way to get a message across. So for you, it was, you know, it was a thing where very clearly it provided some possibility and opportunity, one that you would not otherwise have had. And then two, it really represented the role model that really spoke to you and a chance for you to emulate it. And then, so as you started to build that side, that side business, when did you get to the point or how did you, it's not even when, but what was the decision point for you where you're like, okay, this is big enough. This is stable enough that I can cut the cord on my, you know, quote unquote, real job and just be fully on my own. Yeah, that was a, an easy mathematical equation, Steve. So what I did is I, I got to the point where I was working on weekends and a little bit in the evenings and I had matched my salary from the university that I left and thought, well, what if I did this five days a week instead of in my off time, right? So that's really what made it obvious. And that and getting more inquiries and, and more people reaching out, knowing that I could 
you know, slowly fill that, that gap. So it originally you said you had, you know, you'd kind of started this by reaching out to people that you'd work with in the past. So as you have continued to grow and go forward, where, where do your clients now come from and how has that changed over time as your business has evolved? Yeah, early on it was completely word of mouth. So so I'd work with a grower, they knew another grower that said, Hey, this guy Fritz, he helped me a lot. Try him out or give him a call. Maybe he can help you. Uh, that was a big thing. But probably the most important thing that I did is when I left my other position, I brought with me an email list. It may have only had about 300 people on it. Because let's face it, there's not a lot of grape growers, you know, in in Texas or wherever you're working outside of California. So I brought that with me and I made a newsletter. You know, I sent that out to people. And that was my way of kind of having that contact and and touch point with everyone. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I thought, well, this might be a good way to to maybe bring in some more clients or to demonstrate that that position of authority in in that special place where I worked with grapes. And so I worked on that and probably got a few clients that converted from that. But mostly word of mouth, really, was where where it was going. And I really didn't know where where that list was going either. You know, I had no idea that there would be other things that I would use that for in the future. Is this a small enough industry that it's kind of like everyone knows everyone kind of thing? Or is it a thing where it actually really is bigger and there's plenty of people you don't know or have never heard of or what have you? So, you know, the the expression in somewhere like California is you you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a vineyard consultant, right? Or something like that. I sorry, a little bit of, of an off analogy, but another another consultant said that to me once and I got a kick out of it. Uh, you know, in smaller smaller industries like uh, outside of California, we have California, Oregon, and Washington, which are the three big ones. And then you get into New York and then you get into Virginia and Texas are kind of side to side in terms of their size, but they're very small, close-knit uh, industries. So that's why word of mouth really works well. If you go out and you help people and you're genuine and you're not a fly-by-night operation and you're just a, you know, you try to be a good person, so to speak, and really be genuine and help them and and, and you're reasonable about it and you follow up and you do what you say you're going to do, you know, word of mouth will come. I think the industry, it's very niche in, in general. There's, you know, just the wine industry. If I look at a, a follower, you know, who who does organic gardening or flowers or something like that on Instagram, and, and I see how many followers they have. You know, for the wine industry, if you're doing, hey, I'm I'm showing you how to grow grapes. There's not as many people who are going to follow that. It's so specific, right? But there's definitely opportunity in those small niches too. And there weren't many people doing much more than just consulting in that realm at that time. On the one hand, the nice thing about the size is it's with that interconnectedness, it does really support a word of mouth sort of business. But I would imagine there's could be a downside to that too. What are the things that you would say that you've really done as far as how you go about your business and how you work with your clients to really try and be mindful of that and support that? Is that something that, that comes to mind? Is it really, again, with a lot of people, it'd be a non-issue if you just do good work. But I'm just curious about how that's come into play for you, if at all. Yeah, I, I would say the the number one thing, if you want to keep people happy, and, and my retention in my consulting business is in the high 90 percentile every year for renewal. So the the key, I think, has been not overcommitting, not overpromising. If anything, I tend to underpromise and overdeliver. And I realized after the first few years that I thought there was this model of what you needed to do as a consultant. I looked at what other consultants did and I thought, well, I need to do that. Okay, they're going and visiting and writing a 10-page report. I need to do that. And I would do that at first. And then I found out that well, the grower wasn't really reading that 10-page report. They just wanted me to tell them, hey, if this was your vineyard, what, what would you do or what would I do? And, and so I, I found ways to streamline and summarize and just get to the point. And, you know, and not every client was the same. Some really wanted me to visit and chat and spend time with them. Others, they weren't concerned about that. They weren't feeling like they were paying for my time with them. They were paying for the information and the solution. So I got really good at just dialing in what the, the grower client wanted and delivering that. And then just completely forgetting about what other people were doing. Because the more I focused on that... The more I got lost in the minutia of paperwork and things that I was spending time doing that weren't really helping the grower in the end. And they were taking a lot of my time. So I got rid of a lot of that. And I just created my own 
programs and systems uh, that I thought were working. And I tried to make them as efficient as possible because the more efficient they were, the more clients I could take in and still be able to do a good job with. And so there's, you know, there's lots of tricks that I picked up along the way. And I've since abandoned a lot of those and moved on to other things now. So it really sounds like for you, a big piece of this is the, the focus on your clients and really listening to them rather than being caught up in what's normal, how the industry works, what everyone else does, or any of that. And it sounds like that's one of kind of your keys and how you approach your work. Yeah. And that and getting measurable results. So at the end of the year, when we do our annual review, I always do an annual review call. We talk about, okay, what did we say we were going to do at the beginning of the year review call? Did we do it and did it work? And if so, should we do it again or should we change how we did it? So I think the follow through is really important as well. But there has to be some kind of impact. The grower needs to feel like, wow, you totally rocked the way I'm doing things and changed my business and my vineyard looks better, for example, or the problems I had are now gone. Let's do it again. I want some more of that. So this is a good time to talk about this. Um, for you, I'm interested in understanding like how the nature of an engagement, like you get a new, someone who's interested in working with you, they reach out to you. How do you go about designing an engagement with them? Because it sounds like it's there's at least some degree of customization to it. How do you do that? How does that all work? And for you, where do you find the balance of systematizing versus customization in a way that allows you to both serve your customers optimally, but also be mindful of trying to make your business as uh, efficient as possible so that you can serve as many people and what have you. Yeah. So it's not a one size fits all, right? As you know, for, for your, your clients are all different. So what I try to do is I have my mo most baseline deliverables, right? So if you're consulting at the end of the year, like the grower wants to know, well, what did, what did I get like physically? Was there something delivered? So, you know, maybe that's looking at their plant tissue tests and giving them fertilizer recommendations. That's one deliverable. Maybe designing a program for their pest and disease management in agriculture. That's huge and highly important, whether you're growing organically or conventionally. Um, that's huge. So I have this baseline of deliverables that I do. And it's it's very small, but if if you do it all well, it should be worth the, the, the relationship just to have those deliverables. But what I found over time is that some clients wanted a weekly call. Some just wanted to call me whenever they came up with something, right? They didn't, they didn't have time to talk to me every week. In fact, if I would call them, they'd say, hey, is everything okay? I'd say, yeah, well, I just haven't heard from you in a couple of weeks. Want to make sure everything's, no, everything's fine. You're doing great. I'm busy. Sorry. And they're apologizing to me, even though I probably felt bad that I hadn't called them, you know, I'm playing that mind game. Like I haven't called this client in a month or heard from them. They probably don't like me anymore. Right. And then I call them and they're apologizing to me for not being in better touch. So, so there's all these different levels of requirements. So I do end up customizing things. And then the, the clients that call me less, but really appreciate my work are the ones that I want to keep forever and ever. Right. Because it's a, it's a win-win relationship. But you know, there are some that really just want that, that routine, and there are some that are, are just more open. So I guess to answer your question, the baseline of deliverables is the same. The way it gets delivered and the amount of touch points in between are different um, based on the client. And how many, like not counting right, the, the virtual academy, but how many individual wineries are you serving or working with in any given time? Oh gosh, well that's top secret, Steve. I can't say that on a podcast. <laughs> you know, it's but it, but I, I will say it's probably more than most viticulturists would feel comfortable with. And if I told them the number of clients I had, they would probably say, "Well, it's impossible for you to visit all those vineyards." And and to which I would respond, "It's taken me, you know, fifteen years of refining the process to the point where." It works, you know. So some of these vineyards I'm going to visit uh, twice a year. Some I'm going to visit five times a year. I try to get them all close to each other, so it's efficient. When I jump on the airplane and get in my car, I'm going to go to them all in five days and schedule the time efficiently. Um, but you know, it, it's a number that I'm actually working on reducing over time. I'd like to travel a little less and maybe work a little bit more remotely and virtually, and that's one of the reasons I've really even move some of my clients into a virtual program where I no longer visit them, but I've been to their site. I know their soil. I know their challenges. 
I understand, you know, how their operation works. I've met the workers that work there. We still meet, you know, on a Zoom call or something like that a few times a year just to show face and and to catch up. We still have a relationship. I think a lot of consultants I know feel like they wouldn't have a good rapport or relationship if they weren't constantly physically with that person. And I found uh, that for my, at least for what I'm doing, it's not necessary. If you've already established a good relationship, you can maintain that from a distance. Again, a place where people get caught up in these arbitrary rules of here's what you have to do, or here's what you're supposed to do, rather than finding things that are a little bit more one individualized and two, just paying attention. Right. And I think your point is a good one. It's, you know, if you want to get something spun up literally, or like get a, you know, if you're going to balance a plate that you're spinning, if you're getting it spinning, that's a lot more effort than keeping it spinning. And it's the same thing with a relationship. It's not that it doesn't need attention, but it doesn't need the same kind of attention later as it does on the front end. So that makes, that makes sense. So relatedly, so as you're, you're working to, you know, to have a little bit less and do a little bit less there and, and moving people into the virtual academy, let's, let's shift it to talking about that. Was there a specific kind of trigger event or what, what led to you starting it? And then how that works, you know, and, and what you're doing in, inside of that academy. Sure. Yeah. You know, the, the model that I had for consulting, I learned what it was over those, you know, 10 years or so and who I would best fit with. And sometimes there was a small grower who maybe had a, an acre, let's just say an acre of grapes, or maybe even a backyard grower who had 400 grapevines. And they couldn't really afford the consulting fee. It just didn't make sense economically for them. But yet I had all this information that I could almost hand over to them and say, if you just take this that I gave to this client over here and run with it, you're halfway there, right? This is some really good stuff that you can't find on the internet. And there's no one who wrote a book that explains it this way or whatever it might be. And so I was thinking, maybe I can do some online courses because my bandwidth as a as a one-on-one -on -one consultant was running out. I was serving a very specific group that could afford this, you know, more higher level consulting fee and had a certain size vineyard. They could rationalize it, you know, per acre, it cost me this much or whatever they would want to do. Uh, but there was this whole other audience out there of grape growers. And I had been used to helping everyone when I worked as a public servant. So I didn't like the fact that I, I wasn't helping everyone. I wasn't helping the, the, the little guy, so to speak, who needed that help just as much. And so I thought maybe I can do some online courses and just sell those on the side and that would, that would help. But then I realized that online courses, you know, not everyone completes them. I was, you know, I was getting a concern that maybe someone buys the course, but does it really help them? How do you know? There's, there's almost never any follow through. So I went to a conference uh, with my, my web developer had mentioned to me, they were going to this conference. It was a digital marketing conference in Denver as a summit. And they thought, well, you know, come to this and you can learn about digital marketing and how to you know, sell courses and other things. So I went to that. I was very interested in doing something like that. And when I was there, the speakers that I heard really changed my perspective. So they're talking about business to business and they're talking about, you know, how to help web developers or consultants in different entrepreneurial businesses, nothing to do with agriculture. So I just started taking out the word XYZ business and plugging in viticulture and vineyard consulting and it started clicking. I thought, well, this is no different. There's, here are these sophisticated models that are being used by financial coaches, business coaches, exercise and diet coaches, web developers, people who are doing consulting just like me, but they're just in huge markets, right? If you're in health and fitness, if you're in web development, these are huge markets. And you, know, you really feel like a, a, a small fish in a big pond if you're coming into one of those as entry level. Then I thought, well, I'm already kind of a big fish in my small pond as a vineyard consultant at this point, especially in the areas I work, what if I just applied these concepts? So I came out of that conference completely inspired to do something totally different than what I went there thinking I was going to do. And so I, I decided that not only sharing my information with these growers was the goal, but it was to develop a community of some sort where I could then have touch points to make sure they're, they're, they're reaching their goals, you know, they're getting through the process so that when they buy something off of me, you know, whether it's information or advising that there's some follow through, there's some accountability and they're getting it done. That's 
when I launched Virtual Viticulture Academy. I worked with that web developer and built my first website with them and took my slowly growing email list and created a launch sequence to get people excited about this new thing coming out that no one in my small industry had ever done to that point. It's completely new. Yet it had been done in so many other businesses, but no one had brought it to viticulture. So but it seems like there's an there's a way where for you your because I've noticed this a couple of times in our conversation have this part of you that's like watching and has awareness of wait a second there's an opportunity here there's a thing that I could do whether in this case it's like, I'm going to take this thing that's been built elsewhere that is is not being used here and bring it over and apply it in this place so it sounds like that's kind of a part of how your brain maybe just kind of works I don't know if you cultivate that or if that just happens or what but I'm curious about it. You know, it's because I have been doing it for so long, I understand the industry intimately. I really clicked and understood this whole other marketing and entrepreneurial industry too. Whereas maybe there's other viticulturists who maybe they don't feel comfortable being on a camera or public speaking or working with a lot of clients at the same time. Maybe that's just too chaotic. But you know, for me, it had to be chaotic and, and I had to be doing all those things to make it exciting. And so as a result of doing all those things because it excited me, I, I just had more insight onto what people needed, what their trigger points were, what their pain points were. And so I could immediately start this academy off with this, the good stuff, the stuff people wanted, like right off the bat that, you know, uh, and I started doing this advising every other week, I would go online and go live and the members would come in and ask questions about their vineyard and I'd answer them one-on-one. And that's the, you know, I, I would always joke, I'd say everyone in the Academy, don't tell my clients that I'm giving you this because they pay a lot more money for it, you know, but I'm also in their vineyard. Now, how has the structure and components of the Academy evolved over the time that you've had it and what has triggered those, those changes or shifts? Yeah. So in the beginning it was, it was kind of like, do we just throw a library of resources on there? And then I, I get together. It was really only once a month at the beginning. Now come to think of it, I do every other week now or twice monthly live events and that's evolved since then. But it was really me uh, and Melody who works with me, who I hired specifically to help me uh, just put out an ad one day locally on you know a Facebook group looking for someone to help with small growing business. And, and I found Melody. And so she came in and immediately started helping me organize and get the systems down and, and help me with developing and launching the academy. So, so having someone in there to help with that was really huge for me, even just part-time you know, contract was really great. Having the web development team to carry it out, make sure it was working. And, you know, people were happy with when, when they clicked the button, it did what it said it was going to do. But, you know, the, the changes since I started, not only have I raised the price every year since starting when I relaunch, but there, you know, there's more resources in the, the library, but now we're finding out that growers want more of that social aspect too. And so the one thing that I haven't done, but could be in the future is moving to a platform, something like Circle or some type of social connection platform where the growers can all interact directly. That's the only component missing uh, at this point to be a true community. But we have a Thirsty Thursday at the end of the month where we have an expert guest come on from somewhere in the industry and we all drink wine online on a Zoom call and we, we do Q&A with that expert. And so the growers love it because they would never have access to that high-level expert had they not you know been part of this group. We do that twice monthly live vineyard advising where they send in questions. And now I have a viticulturist, Rachel, who works with me. She's located in Georgia. She works remotely completely, as do I for the most part. And she helps me get the questions together. We answer those questions for the growers. It's really become a, a more full on support service. We have a support email where growers send questions, but we try to make sure they only get answered during those sessions so that we're not constantly working. We can batch things and make it efficient and make it work for us so that we're not uh, burning the candle at both ends, so to speak. But the growth has been also very good in terms of we now have vendors who provide discounts to the growers. So they're technically members of the academy as well. So we have our vendor members, um, we have our, our grower members. And so we're, the community and the resources are starting to build. And then the benefits of being 
a member, you know, being able to receive a discount if you buy grapevines over here or trellis supplies over there or using this lab and getting a discount for your plant and soil analysis. One thing I was very careful about with that is I made sure that I never received any kind of kickback or monetary benefit from any of those relationships that were dependent on a sale from one of my members. I wanted my members to know, you can buy from whoever you want. I'm going to give you the best advice I can. But if you happen to use one of these vendors that's on the list, they're going to give you a discount and that will help pay for your membership. But I won't get like a kickback for that. But but they are members, you know, so they, they pay a membership fee just like you. So they're on the same level. And so that transparency is important. That transparency for me is like critical. That's what, that's what I'm hearing as I and say, it's really been desire for you to really make that clear that I'm, you know, I'm creating this space for people to be able to connect with each other, serve and support each other. But I'm really wanting to operate from a very neutral position within it and make that really clear and transparent that that's how I'm operating. Yes. And so someone might say, well, then how do you, how do you increase revenue, right? If you're not doing that. And so, you know, that's where we started creating other programs. We have this grapevine pruning intensive course where we bring an expert from Italy and and he comes in and, and does a very high level online pruning course. It's like 12 hours online. So we, you know, we have a higher ticket price for that. And it's, if you can't do it unless you're a member, right. Or we have a premium advising program where you're essentially getting a virtual advising package for the year and you pay a, a fee for that for the year. And so there's a certain set of the deliverables that you get for that, a few additional one-on-one check-ins during the season where we, we do a call. And so that's been a very successful program too. And also it's, it just lets us help growers at a more intimate level where we're really digging into their problems. And yes, they're paying a premium for it, but you know we're helping get them results and they don't have to do it every year. They do it for as many years as they need to, to get the, the, the result that they want. And then they can still keep their regular membership on and on into the future. And we want, we want that to be a no brainer. We want the grower to say, there, this is the last thing I'm going to cut is my membership here because I get a lot of benefit from this for the cost. I mean, it sounds like that's really clearly the case, not just because there's a lot of different components, but because they're being built and evolved in a way that, again, is, as I see really commonly here, very attuned to them. What do they need and what serves them? Um, but it's so it sounds like you've created something that is certainly more scalable than your than your individual consulting. How do you manage the the again the challenge here? And maybe this isn't actually even a problem of trying to make this have enough variety and different elements to it to be able to to serve different people, but not making it so complex that the management of it and the operation of it offsets the scaling as far as number of people you're serving. So the the whole scaling part is interesting because I recently had to redo the website to make it a little more user friendly and, and the members wanted to have certain searchability to find things. You know, you don't want to just have a you don't want to get on that content hamster wheel where you're just spitting out new content every week and and you've got to have the certain number you've got to hit or a quota. I really don't like quotas. I don't like self-imposed deadlines if I can avoid it. And so my model was if there's a need for it, let's do it, but let's not do it just to do it. Let's not just put out information just because we said we would do it once a month. So we we do we do aim to try to get new content out there. It's easy to get lost in that. So we do a weekly newsletter where we just push the most pertinent content right in front of the user at the time when it's needed. And because I work on this cyclical plant basis. So there's a, the, the vine starts growing in the spring, right? And then it flowers and, and then it, you get small fruit that's setting and then the fruit starts to ripen and then you get close to, to maturity and harvest. There's certain information that the grower needs each step of the way. So we've got a whole timeline of all of our information and where it fits relative to this phenological stage of the plant is what we call it. And we push it out there in front of them so that they don't have to really search around on the website for it. We kind of put it out there and we created programs for new growers who just planted vines and don't have fruit yet. What do they need to know? And how is that different from someone who has a a mature vineyard with fruit in it? So we're creating, I guess, what you call these pathways to try to, to put growers into a program 
that's best going to fit their need. And that's an ongoing process. Uh, so we're using some, you know, core software like Sensei is the one we're, we're using currently to, to give a, a grower kind of like a checklist and a way to get through it so that they're more likely to follow the sequence and not miss anything that's critical. So there, there's a big chance. I think that the question is kind of like, how do you keep the member or that grower from being overwhelmed and make sure that they're getting what they need? And I think that's kind of how. And then, and then of course, um, showing up live. I've got to be there. So my team has right. to be there. We have to show up when we say we're going to show up. And that's a regular thing. I think the thing about not having people get overwhelmed is really important. And I think it's something that sometimes gets missed. I've seen a couple communities where there's so much information. And even if it's categorized, it's just so much that it there it becomes overwhelming and and really intimidating and problematic. And it sounds like you're really trying to be mindful of how do we give the right information to the right people at the right time and yeah. kind of evolve that over time. It seems like that's something that's really an, a focus for you. Yeah. So that that's part of it. And then learning that really just because we built this model doesn't mean it fits everyone. So mm -hmm. I, I stopped getting upset when a member says, hey, I don't want to renew or could you please cancel my you know, membership? But we do ask and usually it's something like, well, you know, I just wasn't using it or, you know, I was very rarely do people say they're overwhelmed, but, but you know, they're so busy in general with their business that you know how it is. You, I haven't been using that subscription for a year or two. I think I need to cut that. And I totally get it. And, but then you have the other member who's there at all the live events or half of them, they don't only show up to ask their question. They want to sit in and listen to everyone else's questions because they're learning. They're at that learning phase where I, I'm going to learn from someone else's mistakes and someone else's issues before they become mine. Maybe I can prevent them. And that's really the, the ideal type of, of member in that community. So what I'm trying to do now is find that person who likes to work in those in that type of an environment and because that's the member who's going to stay on for the long haul and who's going to really help build community. Because if you have people coming in and going out and in and out, uh, you don't really have that sense of community. It's just kind of this, it's like getting on the subway versus getting in your commuter van with the same people you commute with every day, you know? Familiar faces, uh, you, you hear their story, you follow that person through their journey. You know, we, we'll call it maybe their vineyard journey or whatever it mm -hmm. is. Um, and so, uh, there's, there's something to be said about that. Well, it seems like, and I don't know if this is the case, just my imagining it from outside, but I, I would wonder if loneliness, but in general, just a lack of connection and community is a challenge in that field because of the nature of the work. Yeah. So grapes tend to grow in remote areas that are oftentimes very beautiful, but not heavily populated. Also, grape growers are crazy. You know, if, if you plant a vineyard, if you're listening to this, it is a crazy thing to do. Do I help crazy people? Yes, I do. Am, am I a crazy person? I don't have a vineyard. I've got a few yard, a few vines in my backyard here, but that's that's mostly because it would be a lot for me to 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 take care of with the amount of travel that I do. Yeah, they're they're really remote. There's not a big network, or at least nearby. Maybe there's a regional group or a statewide group or an organization for grape growers that they can be a part of. I'm usually less costly to, to join my membership than it would be to join a, a state organization or it's a similar cost, but I'm, I'm kind of there all the time. And so are the other members. And my goal is that it's more of an international community at some point where growers go in there and say, well, you know, I kind of know what's going on here in Minnesota or in Michigan or in Pennsylvania, but I'd really like to know what they're doing in Northern Italy where they have similar climate or maybe in uh, South Dakota, right? Because we have members in over 30 states and about 10 countries in the academy now. So it, it does give you kind of a, a window to the world. And I think that's an attractive part too. It's not just like, hey, this is not just my local organization. This is something that's giving me access to more than, than what I get locally. Yeah. And I, I think this is one of those things that that's why I wanted to highlight it is that different industries, right, have their own unique challenges or circumstances that make certain things maybe more appealing or more meaningful to them. And it seems like here we're talking about a case where community is something that isn't necessarily as easy or readily available. And it is something that you've effectively pr provided adjacent to 
to all of this informational resources that you're providing. So it ends up making something that, that would seem like to a lot of these folks kind of a no-brainer, at least again from my mind. So it seems like a really smart way, again, of solving some very real problems that are really specific to your industry in a way that really fits for them. Yeah. You know, I, I had a client once tell me, Steve, I said, hey, are we going to work together, together again next year? You know, how's it going? He said, Fritz, when the lights go out in the bar at night, you're going to be the last guy standing. And so I took that as a compliment and it made me think like, that's what I want. I want I want to be the last thing standing when, when a grower says, hey, you know, what's really providing value? Number one, where I, I, I see it's impacting my vineyard. Number two, what what do I enjoy too? Like what what's pleasurable to me? Do you know who do I want to spend my time with? You know, because you can only spend your time with so many people and communities, and there's so many things out there you can join and be a part of. I, I want to be the last guy standing. You know, I want the academy to be that thing that that is the last thing to get cut because uh, I want it to be that helpful and I want it to be fun. You know, let's face it. Like I want to have fun when I work, so I want the growers to have fun when they show up too. What led to the initiating of the podcast and how does the podcast tie into all of this? So, you know, af- after you've used your email list to reach as many people as you can and, you know, you, you go on social media and you do some informational videos there and, hey, how can I help more grape growers? How, what, like, what's, where do I find them? You know, is there like a, a hangout where they go and I can go and chat with them, right? So you go to conferences and speak and build your email list and, and reach out. And, and the idea is to get more people into your community so you can expand it and make it better, right? So you can make it better for the, the people in the community and also for the business itself. I've always enjoyed public speaking. I've always enjoyed that aspect of it. I've been told that I explain things that are in a way that a grower understands them more quickly than, than maybe other speakers they've listened to. So it, it was kind of a, a message to me that maybe I need to just get in more people's earbuds and help them a little bit that way. So the podcast, the initial idea was, how do I help more grape growers? Well, a podcast is, is a great way to do that. If there's nothing visual about it, I looked online to see who is doing podcasts about grape growing, and there were maybe one or two indirectly, or there's lots of podcasts on wine or wine appreciation or even wine making, but not much on the technical aspects of grape growing. So I thought, well, here's an opportunity. You know, I can go in and help grape growers this way. I've already got, like I said, all of the, the educational information ready to go. I've got the contacts and speakers who have joined my organization and my membership to, to do uh, presentations and Q&As uh, and ask me anything type things. Why not just put this into a podcast format so I can hopefully reach more more individuals, more grape growers? And so that that started about a year ago. So I'm I'm on episode thirty something right now. I wanted to, to also have something I could do more remotely from my studio, from my office. And so getting a microphone is not a, a as you know a big expense. And so the, the problem with initiating it because I I bought my microphone, Steve, like eight years ago to do a podcast. Uh-huh. And I sat on it. I sat in the box there. And I'm like, well, what am I waiting for? Well, I just don't have the bandwidth. I'm too busy. So I got with my team and basically we decided, okay, what is it going to take to get this done? Because we know it's going to be a hit. We know it's going to help growers. We know it's going to also maybe be a way for people to find out about the academy. And if that's a good fit for them, then they can they can come into the academy and find that community. And so I eventually had to hire a production company. That was the solution. So we looked around for a production company. Um, I'll just say we use Emerald City Production out of Florida. They do a great job. Danny's been great for us there and his team. And so again, for me, I like to do the things that I like to do, right? So I don't want to write a 10-page report. I want to go to the vineyard, take some notes, give them to the grower, say, if this is my vineyard, I would do X, Y, and Z, and hand that to them. And then I go and do the next thing. And I don't have a, a trail of paperwork and follow up. I'm not really good at it, to be honest. And you can ask anyone on my team. So I wanted to come in and have the the idea or the script and just kind of look at that and interview and have that conversation like we're having now, but me and another grape grower or something. And and have fun and then record it and then walk away. And then a week later, the podcast is, is, is ready. And so that was the only way that was going to work for me. There's a lot more to it. My team is amazing. They help you know, with, with handling it all, project management. Thank you, Melody. And so there's so many things that happen in the background. But 
having that done professionally, immediately I was getting feedback from growers who were listening to it saying, finally, there's a podcast on grape growing. But not only that, it's really good quality. The sound quality is good. The show notes, everything's there. And there's just no way I had the bandwidth to do that, not even within my own small team. So did it cost money up front? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I put in $25,000 into my podcast in the first year between making a website and, and you don't have to do that. You can do it all yourself very affordably. But my goal was to match the level of quality that was expected from the membership I had already and the growers I worked with already. And I think it's, you can ask me again in five years, but I think it's gonna, gonna work out. And it's been a really fun adventure doing it. Well, it also feels like as a medium, as a, a, a because of again who your audience is and what they're doing and how they're operating. One of the things people, of course, like about podcasts is you can listen to them while you're doing other stuff. They're very portable, and so you can be out in your vineyards checking things out, doing things, and you can be listening to a podcast, which is not true of necess- you can't be reading a book while you're doing it but you can be listening to a podcast. And so it's, I think, really smart from the standpoint of the the thing that I've heard this multiple times in our conversation, it seems like one of, I won't call it a trick, but one of the things that you've really worked hard on is, is finding ways to both pay attention to what you want and what you like and to honor that, but to do it in ways that are still mindful of the people you're serving. So you're still serving them. You're just doing it in a way that fits you. And I think that's the intersection that doesn't always get talked about with this, that you know, when people talk about the do what you do what you want, all this kind of thing, it's like, yeah, that's true. And because you're doing it in a way that still serves your audience, still serves your clients. And I think that's part of what's allowed you, I think, to be successful, I would guess, because you're both providing great service, but doing it in a way that still, again, honors and supports yourself. So it's, um, it's a really powerful mix. Yeah, it, it took a while to figure that out, Steve. But <laughs> sure, I will say, you know, it's a, there's a lot of monotonous task in the vineyard: canopy management, pulling leaves. The rows 500 feet long. You've got you know 100 of those rows to do, or you're driving in your tractor, mowing grass, spraying something, whatever it is. You can listen to a podcast, and it's true. And when I look at the stats, the the podcast, the listener listens through 70 percent or more of every episode. So that means they're getting some value out of it. You know, you don't just listen to something technical like people talking about grape growing unless you're really right. getting something out of it. But I'm also hoping that they just enjoy listening to it, you know. It's not a secret. I just want them to uh, have fun or feel like they're in the room. I I want them to laugh out loud a little bit or be like, "Hey, that's that, you know, that's what I expected I was going to get today, you know, by listening in." And, you know, you can't hit a home run every time when you're, you know, you wake up in the morning, every day is a little different. When I'm having a good day, I'll batch them. I'll do, a, I'll do a few because I know it's going well. But the, the listeners, in, at least in vineyards, they have a lot of drive time too in between stuff, you know. So I think that's the place to be. And, you know, I was listening to podcasts like a fiend when I was driving between my vineyards. That's all I would do for about a two-year period is listen to podcasts. Well, people ask, well, what did you listen to? Well, I listened to online marketing podcasts, uh, online membership podcasts, everything that I was trying to learn about to build what I was doing to, to reach more grape growers and help more growers. I was listening to that. Not only that, there weren't any viticulture podcasts for me to listen to. So that's why I knew I had to create one. Very clear hole in the market that um, solving your own problem in a sense, right? So going forward for you, like what is your ultimate vision and goal for your business relative to where it is now? What more do you want to add, do, expand, if anything? That's a great question. And it's a hard one to answer because I, I think of that five-year plan And then I see where I am even three years after I've made that plan, whether it's a written plan or a plan in my mind, usually it's the latter and it's completely different place. So, you know, the, the, the goal is to continue to help grape growers and that's the rewarding part. Do I want to make a living doing it? Yes. Do I want to make a better living every year or at least a sustainable living every year doing it? Absolutely. I think for me, it's not about hiring a bunch of other people to do what I do. It's not about building a network of consultants and then managing them. 
because managing a bunch of people is not what I got into this for. I got into this because I wanted to communicate with people, to talk directly with the the grower, the end of the road, that's who I'm helping, or that new vineyard manager that's out in the world there. So I want to just find more ways to do that. I would like to see, if anything, expansion into a more international community. I think that would be really exciting. I don't know what that looks like yet, but I know if I translated most of my stuff into at least Spanish, for example, there's a great community of, of agriculture out there that speaks Spanish as a primary language. That could be a, an area to expand. Um, but right now, I think I'm, I want to keep growing the academy to the point where I feel like I've got that as a business model that's self-supporting. It has to be profitable. It doesn't have to make millions of dollars, but it has to be something that is consistent and reliable. And so I think growing that community is really the main focus now. And I think the podcast will feed into that. And for me, you know, I don't, I don't really see myself stopping anytime soon. There's not like an end goal for that. If, if my real passion is helping grape growers and, and traveling and speaking and doing things like that, it's not that I want to travel more, but I don't want to stop doing it. You know, I always want to be involved in, in, that, in that community. But, but more on an international level. Which makes sense. There's there's a lot more, obviously, possibility and opportunity there. A lot more people in this world who you have the knowledge and information to be able to serve who could benefit from it. Yeah. I mean, I guess if my main goal is just to make money, I could find all kinds of partnerships with maybe a wine brand and then we'd sell wine or maybe a, a vendor or supplier and then promote them. And, you know, I could do I could find ways just to to make money. But that's not that's not the exciting part. The money is confirmation that you're doing things okay, like you're going to be okay, but it's not the the main objective. And so I do want things to be more profitable. I do want to make things more efficient within how I run my academy, how my team operates with what we decide, what digital products, if you want to call them that, you know, we have packages that we now promote within the academy. If you want to start a vineyard, if you're out there and you've got a piece of land, we have a whole package where we evaluate your site remotely and design your entire vineyard all the way down to the variety of grape and the rootstock you planted on in the row direction without ever setting foot on site. Now there's some back and forth required and some video and things like that. And of course, you know, we can come out and visit it, but we're trying to do more things like that, that are fun and challenging and quite honestly, no one else is doing so opportunity there as well. Yeah. Lots of cool possibilities. It sounds like. So I'm wondering if, if you're, if you're games, is there anyone who has run a business knows there are definitely challenges, obstacles, and problems that show along the journey um, that that get in the way and such. And so I'm wondering if you're up for it, if we can find something there for you that is a current challenge or obstacle for you and poke around at that piece of, of the business if you've got something. So we, we have, you know, I said I have a team of project manager who also works with all three aspects of my business. And then I've got a viticulturist that works with me who's fantastic. And she helps with the education and technical side of things. And so I think part of it's just bandwidth and meeting timelines to kind of get things all done. I feel like we're leaving things on the table that we can be helping more growers with and and creating more revenue, which would then help the business to, to help more growers. So we can get lost in the in the weeds of what we're doing and not making plans to to get the next big thing done the next offering of a course or you know all these ideas that we have that we know would be a smash hit if we could just spend that time to put them together and package them if you will and then create a, a price structure and get them out there and say you know here's something else you can do we're doing some of that, but I think that's how we not only grow, but but help meet the needs of growers more, you know, so we're offering more things for them. So really the 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 whole challenge of wanting to wanting to create space to build these initiatives, these new things, to get those things going, but that sometimes you just between resources available because of how the size of your team, but also just that you get caught up in, as any of us do who are doing our business. The day-to-day of working, you know, as, as they say in the e-myth, right? The working in your business versus working on your business. And what I'm hearing is you're realizing that maybe the working on your business piece isn't getting the sort of attention that you'd like. Yeah. The bandwidth is running short on some of that. So it's, it's a matter of you know, prioritizing if, if we're going to do at least one new thing every quarter, mm-hmm. right? You know, what's it going to be and how are we going to get it done? And so 
it's been a challenge. Sure. So what are, what do you see like in your mind as you look at this? What do you see as the different options available to you for as for how you might go about trying to tackle and solve that problem right now? Well, first of all, I should get up earlier and (laughs) that's not a problem. I'm definitely up early enough. You know, I think part of it is my bandwidth is very distracted because I'm doing three different businesses. And so there's a level of person who will just text me on my phone that could pop up at any time. Uh, Then I've got my team maybe pinging me with stuff about what's going on in the support box and a program we have coming up next week and reviewing and approving stuff. So for me, my challenge is just the, the focus and attention and, and making sure, you know, I, I feel like we're getting all the things that we've promised we're going to get done. But those things that people don't know about that we're talking about in the background that we know are going to be great are not getting done. So it's, a, you know, it's bandwidth thing. So for those sorts of things that you, again, want to get done that aren't getting done, um, the important non-urgence of things what do you, how do you go about finding time for that? Is that a, where it shows up or where does, how do those things move forward right now under the way your, your business is structured? Right now, someone from my team says, Hey, we said we're going to do this. We're going to block time on your calendar to make sure we get it done because we can't do it without you. You're part of this team. The team gets a ton done without me. Don't get me wrong. And takes initiatives without me when they know that things have to keep moving. You know, I think part of it is just blocking out that time and 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 really focusing on just that. Now, if to the extent there, so there's there's the because there's the element of this that's a structuring issue, which is what we're talking about there. Then there's the element, as you're saying, about a resource, yeah, you know, where there's just a resource versus need discrepancy. Is this a thing where for you, you've looked at and and are thinking about the idea of possibly increasing your team, or is it a thing where it feels more like, are there some things that we could maybe do less of or shrink or eliminate or, because of course you can work either side of that equation. So what's your, what's your take on how to manage the resource equation at this point? Yeah, I think what's, what's happened is every year, my team looks back at the past year and, and we have these bottlenecks where everything's happening at the same time. And, you know, we have the end of the year client reviews and our premium member reviews with the growers. At the same time, we're trying to relaunch our our pruning course. And then we're hitting the holiday season at the same time. And then we have to start, you know, sending out contracts in November again for renewal for clients. So a lot of things kind of bottleneck all into this six week period. And so I think we've done a good job at spreading that out over more of like a eight to 10 week period, starting some things earlier that we can get done earlier. Like who, who can we start doing an earlier review with who harvested their grapes earlier, something like that. So I feel like that's kind of how the team approach has, has been. And so it's not like a major issue. We're still getting everything done, but all those other new ideas that we want to bring in to the fold that I know, like I said, would be successful. That It's just hard to find time to get those. And so it's, Maybe it's a common problem every entrepreneur <laughs> or business person has. Or they're like, got so many ideas, and that's to me like I'm the idea person, but I need that you know that help to execute. That's not my specialty. My specialty is more thinking of the ideas and observing and listening to the growers, understanding their needs, and then trying to put together something that's going to help them. But then that needs that needs the help. That's where I need the help we can see that you've been able to add and build these things over time despite operating in this way. But it sounds like what's happened is there's not a really truly dedicated space either for, well, as far as resource goes, whether that resource is you, whether that resource is others on your team. And in part that resource is about time and energy that is being allocated specifically for the idea of this is space where we work on building the future, building new initiatives, building programs, and we just do that, right? And that's there. And that's really treated as a thing that is every bit as important as the day-to-day and the taking care of our clients. And we just, we build it out that way so we can do it. Because that's like the total common entrepreneurial challenge, right? Where we're fighting fires, dealing with challenges, serving our clients, and those things that are important but not urgent. Are you familiar with the Eisenhower matrix? No. So it's basically this thing where you can take any task and throw it into this four-part matrix that based on one of two categories, importance and urgency. So ur- urgent and important is quadrant one. 
And that's like just all the you know kind of stuff we get caught up in reacting to. And then there's not urgent and not important, which is quadrant four, which is just stuff that doesn't really matter, junk mail, whatever, right? Then there's urgent, but not important. That's quadrant three. And so that's like notifications on your phone from Facebook, <laughs> you know, things that are get your attention <laughs> to distract you. But then there's quadrant two, which I've left for last because it's actually the most important, the thing that needs the most focus. And that's things that are important, but not urgent. We struggle with this as human, right? This is the, you need to go to the doctor to get that checkup that you haven't done. You need to make sure you've got your um, your estate planning done, right? All those sorts of things. In business, it's the thinking about the future, thinking about the big picture, because it doesn't necessarily have an immediate return, number one, and it doesn't have an immediate impact to not do it. So it's real easy to kind of go, okay, we'll try and fit it in. But the reality is you've got, and as your business has grown, so much going on, it doesn't necessarily just fit in or it's very hit and miss. And so it's about how do you create dedicated resources for that, that treat it the same way you would as one of your individual clients reaching out to you and being like, Hey, I got this, the situation going on. I need some attention. I think that's really probably the, the challenge for you is deciding how you want to do that and who within the context of either your current team or enhancing your team you want to have to be able to do that. And I think that's a hard shift for people to make because it is, it's an investment. It is not an immediate payoff by any means, but it can be very powerful. Yeah. I see opportunities um, because we work on this plant-based cycle throughout the 365 days, you know, we can find where our points are, where there is a little more time and work on pushing some of those things out during those times as well. Yeah, I would agree. The cyclical nature of your business is advantageous here because of that natural cycle and creating space for that the same way that you wanted, you know, like, okay, cool. I've got some time to go skiing as well. But um, you also may have spaces in your year where you go, where is the space where it makes sense to do this sort of looking and planning and, and working on things and doing that. And again, and figuring out who within the context of your team are the people you want to have do that, whether that's just a thing that's just you, whether it's you, Melody, and creating a system or a structure to support that is a thing that I think is, is what we're hearing because that gives you that space for it. It'll, it'll help the things to move forward. You can get whatever you get out of that time, but it'll still be because it's focused and it's there, it'll still be a lot more effective than what you're doing now. So I think something like that is probably at the next step to starting to be able to get those things moving forward and to be able to, to create more space for it. Yeah. And I, and I will tell you, I'm definitely the limiting factor because my team is is working hard on carving out that time so much. I, I just can't thank them enough. But you know, I want to say, Steve, it comes full circle. You remember how I said I originally got into this when I was uh, 20 years old? I was actually 19, I think. And I read that magazine at the library and it said, then in the wintertime when the vines are dormant, I get my break to go on my ski trips. Well, it just so happens that ski season is the busiest time of year for me now. Oops. So it totally, <laughs> totally backfired, but I still sneak in a couple trips a year and it's, it's always a lot of fun. So the best laid plans and all of that, right? That's, that's sometimes how that, that goes for sure. That's really funny. So Fritz, I appreciate what you taking, taking the time to, to come and share about your business and your business journey. And for folks who are interested in learning more about you, what you're doing, what you're up to, What's the best place for them to start? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff of yours online, obviously, but where would, you, where would you recommend they begin? Well, because they're listening to a podcast right now, I would recommend they go to the Vineyard Underground podcast if they're interested in truly learning about grapes on a podcast, or if they're a business person that just wants to know how a viticulturist approaches the podcast, uh, who's working with a community and, and with, with clients. But to follow me and actually see me in some vineyards, you can go to Instagram at Westover Viticulture and same thing on Facebook, Westover Viticulture. And uh, the academy would be virtualviticultureacademy.com. And I do have a, a website for the podcast, which is vineyardundergroundpodcast.com. And besides that, you might see me out in a vineyard somewhere if you're, uh, you know, if you're down here in the Southeast, at least. Excellent. So yeah, and I'll include links for, for all of that in the show notes um, and you know, definitely encourage everyone to, to check that stuff out. Thanks again for taking the time to come on to share about your story and about what you're doing in your work. And I would encourage people, even if they're not in, in your industry to check out your podcast, because the thing like in this conversation, I think will illustrate it 
that one does not have to be in the industry that one is listening about, learning about, or whatever, to be able to learn some things that can be useful in 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 your industry, right? And there's, I mean, there's stuff we've talked about here that would be applicable to people in all sorts of businesses. So again, really appreciate the the time and you coming on and being part of the show. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Pleasure to be here and to share a little bit about my journey too. <laughs> 